0: Our Your brothers and sisters there in Christ greet you warmly, and we are glad to be laboring together for the gospel here in Hampton Roads so this Christmas is a time to get together with family right and we many of us spent good time with our families and I was reminded of something that it's hard to forget about my family. We are a very competitive group. Uh, David Clark over there knows me from college, so he knows this to be true of me in particular. But uh, everything's competitive in my family. Who ordered the best meal when we go out to eat at a restaurant? It's a competition. Who grills the best steaks? Who arrives first when we take separate cars? Who's the best at Settlers of Catan? right these are all the these are all the questions that constantly need to be updated and answered in my family whenever we're together it seems hopefully your family isn't quite to that extreme but maybe you can relate in some way uh... to this spirit of competition maybe you can relate to the spirit of competition with your coworkers, or maybe if you're a student you can relate to the spirit of competition with your classmates But what happens when this spirit of competition enters the church? We see hostility. We see divisions. We see territorial disputes between different ministries and rivalries. And Paul's first letter to the Corinthians addresses a church where all of this is going on. From the very beginning of this letter, into chapter 3 and then beyond, Paul's addressing something very basic to the human heart, and that's our competitive desire for status, recognition, reputation. So we're going to take a break this morning. I know you guys have been studying the book of Luke. We're going to take a break this morning, and we're going to look at this uh, message that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Corinth from chapter 3 verses 1 through 23. It's printed in your bulletins, so please follow along as I read the text. I, brothers, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as a people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ." Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, that your spirit would enliven our hearts as we reflect on this teaching. And Lord, we pray that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified in our midst as we spend time together in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see what in this passage? We see this passage calling us to live and act and think in a way that's utterly foreign to us. It's completely different. This passage is saying that Christians must exchange their own individual glory for the glory and growth of Christ's church. Let me say that again. Christians must exchange their individual glory for the glory and growth of Christ's church. When I say that, I think it's important that we take a moment... And think about what it is we mean when we say church. Because oftentimes too many of us uh, think of a a building or a place where we go. It's actually probably helpful to be a church plant and know that when the church gathers here, you're, you're not associating it as much with a building because you're associating it more with the gathered people. And that's helpful because that's exactly what the New Testament word means. It means the gathered ones, the gathered people. And the word church itself isn't actually used in this passage. But the growth of Christ's church is central to what Paul's talking about. And now I keep saying this phrase church growth over and over again. And that can be a touchy subject. Some of you can be getting a little uncomfortable. Hey, are we talking about, we're going to be talking about strategies and um, enticing or tricking people into believing. Sometimes at a church plant, right, there can be a lot of insecurity over, over church growth and oh gosh, just pressure to, to grow. Well, let me, let me tell you guys about a TV show that my wife and I have been watching this fall. Every, every fall we kind of try and find a bunch of TV shows and try one and inevitably one sticks and that's inevitably one that is going to be canceled. Uh, <laughs> my wife has an amazing knack, she's here with me today. She has an amazing knack for having her favorite new show every fall be one that is destined to be canceled. But it works out well because then we don't get stuck watching it for years. You know, 13 episodes and we're done. But so this fall, the it's already been canceled, by the way. The show uh, was Selfie. This comedy um, that was a, that was kind of the latest remake of Pygmalion or My Fair Lady. Where, uh, you know, in modern age, this this girl, this woman working for this... Uh, pharmaceutical company named Eliza was totally image obsessed you know millions of Twitter followers and Instagram followers and uh, and then her her reputation got got ruined very publicly and she's she's desperate to remake her image and meanwhile there's a guy at this company who's great skill is repackaging, rebranding drugs that aren't selling well uh, or products that aren't selling well and just giving them a new uh, facelift, so to speak. So she wants her to do the same thing. She wants him to do the same thing for her. You know, know, rebrand me, repackage me. But what of course the show's all about is he can't just change her image. There's, There's something uh, substantive that needs to change within her, the image obsession has to has to change, and when the church talks about growth, unfortunately too often, we fall into the same problem as that Eliza character in the in that show, um, where we we think, okay we just got to change what we're doing a little bit. we just got to make ourselves look a little bit more appealing. And then, you know, all the followers will come back. Everybody will want to be, everybody will be attracted to us. But this is not what we're talking about. When we talk about church growth, at least it it shouldn't be what we're talking about. Instead, we want to be talking about the growth of the kingdom of God, the expansion of God's kingdom, and the growth of his people... The building of the church, and it only happened not through fun gimmicks and uh, you know new logos, but through the actual changing of hearts. So we're going to look at three aspects of church growth today. The first is that the church is built by God. The second is that the church is built through His people, and then the third is that the church is built for the glory of Christ. Built by God, built through his people, and then finally built for the glory of Christ. So let's begin by looking at how the, what it means that the church is built by God by looking at the, the first half of our passage there. The Corinthian church has been looking at preachers the same way that Corinthian society looks at other teachers and public figures. And what does that mean? They're, they're saying, well, which one am I going to attach my identity to? So we see in verse four, you know, one is saying, I follow Paul, another saying, I follow Apollos. And he's saying and Paul, Paul says, Aren't you you're merely being being human. You're looking at this the same way everybody else around you looks at things, which is why I couldn't address you as a spiritual people, but I had to address I have to address you as infants in Christ, because you you haven't gotten the very basic nature that the kingdom of God just works completely differently than the world around us. What is what does the world around us do? Well, even today we see we people, ourselves included, wanting to fix our identity to celebrities or to political parties or politicians um, or ways of ways of thought. You know, what are the bumper stickers on your car or the celebrities in your Twitter feed? But Paul is stepping back and asking the question, okay. You're doing the same thing in the church, right? You're saying, I follow this leader. Oh, I'm, I'm one of these people. Well, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He asks in verse 5. And his answer is this. Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. And then what follows is a metaphor about how the gospel message has taken root in the hearts of the Corinthian church. Paul planted. Apollos watered. But God gave the growth. And that's key. Because we know that the church is built by God. And so we have this agricultural metaphor showing us this. And the Paul, then what that means when we, when we see that it's God giving the growth is the position of Paul and, and any other Christian leader is actually then put in this low place. Because, yes, Paul laid the foundation. But what he's implying here is that God could have used any of his servants to do this. Paul and Apollos are each merely serving in the field, according to this metaphor. Let's look more closely at the metaphor. Look in verse 5. God assigned them the task. And then we look in verse 6, and we see God was giving the growth. And then we look in verse 7, and we we see, okay, this means now that God is everything, and the servants are nothing. And then we look at verse 8, and we see he who plants and he who waters are one. So, All the servants are equal and God is the one who rewards. And then finally look at verse 9 where Paul makes clear that the Corinthian church, you are God's field, God's building. And that's true of the church today as well. We are God's field. And then there's a transition in this metaphor, God's building. The church is built by God. The Holy Spirit is bringing people to faith. When I was in Mexico this summer, I went down to Mexico with a group of teenagers from Trinity and we were doing a project there and I got to talking with our host about the prices of food. It's just always interesting to me to compare the prices of food in different economies and I was amazed at how cheaply they could get so much produce. Much of our produce is, you know, comes from Mexico. and He had a lime tree in his yard. And I was telling him, man, in the spring we were paying a dollar for a lime. And he I was like, that is unimaginable. But he said, I know why you were paying a dollar for that lime. And it's because we had an entire crop wiped out by a frost. Now, it wasn't that the farmers in Mexico were negligent or foolish. Right? They had no control over the frost. It is ultimately, farming is this amazing picture for us, that it is not, not us who brings growth to food, right? It, it comes apart from what we can do. The farmer works the field, but he is dependent on the creator to give that growth. And so too, Individual Christian teachers and preachers must be understood as servants laboring in the field, working, doing good, important work, but ultimately unable to bring about change in the hearts of people. That is only what the Holy Spirit can provide. And that means that our preachers and our teachers aren't celebrities, they're servants. And it means the same thing for us today that it meant for the Corinthian church. And as a pastor, of course, I find this deeply convicting because I want people to respect me, I want people to think highly of me. And I struggle with comparing my teaching and my ministry with that of other ministers in and around Norfolk and Virginia Beach and all over the country. But as convicting as this passage is for me as a pastor, it's actually aimed at a local congregation. You are God's field. Christians grow together, not as a bunch of individual crops, but as a field full of crops. So be careful about how you identify yourself. Are you being built up primarily by Carlos, are you being built up primarily by some Christian author that you just read all the time, or by some other Christian pastor like Tim Keller that you listen to the podcast for? No, no. We're being built up by God through these servants. And so, as we evaluate our leaders or other sources of Christian teaching, we must always ask if they are pointing us to the message of the gospel or if they're pointing us towards themselves or if they're pointing us towards something else altogether. But more importantly, according to this passage, when we find good preachers, notice Paul doesn't say, Apollos is some terrible teacher, or I was some terrible teacher. He's saying, when we find good teachers and leaders, we should not pit them against each other. We shouldn't make some hierarchy of, you know, Tim Keller and John Piper, or these RUF campus ministers, or different pastors here in Virginia Beach. They may be better suited for different tasks, but to identify ourselves with one teacher over another is to fundamentally misunderstand the church, that we are called together as one field, as one building, and a building built by God. Because ultimately pastors will come and go, but the church continues. The church remains. God will provide workers for the field, but it's only healthy when it's rooted in Jesus. And so we see that it's not about the packaging, but it's about the content. The context changes, but the content can't. Now, if you're not a Christian, or if you've had a bad experience with the church being divisive, this is where you may say, well, that's why I'm, not going to do my, that's why I'm just going to do my own thing, and I'm not going to waste my time with all these bitter, competitive people in the church. But the problem with that is that Paul says that it's in the church that, that God is doing his work. And the work of, of building the church is central to the work of God's kingdom. And that means that the solution isn't to reject teaching or to reject the church. And you can't be complacent or only concerned about your own, fostering your own growth. Well, I'm just going to do me, you know, or I'm just going to go on my own spiritual journey. no. Actually, we're called to care about other people. We're called to do that in the midst of the church. So look at verse 10. Paul laid a foundation, and now others are building upon it. He says, let each take care how he builds upon it. He doesn't say, now if you want to build upon it, then be careful. And go into it with fear and trepidation. Hmm. There's an assumption here on Paul's part that each one of us is involved in the work of building the church. Because yes, the church is built by God, but the church is built through God's people. Not just built through some of God's people, but built through all of God's people. The church is built through God's people. And it's important to stress again that we're not talking about buildings, we're not talking about programs, but we're talking about people. And the building up of the church is the gathering of God's people. And the problem for the Corinthians and for us comes when we try and make the church about something other than Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. What does verse 11 says? For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling a people to himself for all eternity. And therefore, the work of building the church means investing ourselves in that which has eternal significance. The hearts and souls of other people. Now, how much time do we waste on things of no lasting value? You don't have to answer that question right now. You can just think about it to yourself. We waste a lot of time on things of no lasting or eternal value. We, but what, what does have eternal value? It's, it's these people around you whom God has has made in His own image. And when we focus on outward appearances and momentary glory and affirmation, we're building with lesser materials, Paul says. Paul speaks of building upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, all there in verse 12. And he goes on to say that the work that each one of us contributes will become manifest. It will become clear what kind of work we are doing. And when is that going to happen? On the day. Paul's referring to the day of judgment. The day when Christ returns to claim his prize, the church. And at that time, all of our efforts to get people to respect us, all of our efforts to get people to follow us, all of our efforts to get people to behave the way we want them to, All those efforts are going to be exposed for what they are. And they're not going to be exposed as glorious kingdom efforts of gold and silver and precious stones, but as self-serving and worthless efforts of hay and wood and straw, because they detract from Christ and they point not to salvation. This was the whole problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day, that they were pointing not to salvation, but to their own works and to their own respectability. They were actually pointing people away from salvation. Because the one who learns great morals but doesn't learn to depend on Jesus will be lost because morals and respectability can't save a person from the sin and brokenness of the heart, from the separation from God that each one of us faces. Only Jesus can. And so if I build the church with those lesser materials of just trying to change the way people behave... And, and given fun jokes and social events and just trying to get people to not drink or do drugs or anything like that, and by don't give them the lasting material of Jesus Christ crucified, of a real Savior who came to save us from real sin and real pain, well then, none of that is going to last. Look at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, though only as through fire. One of the greatest problems for buildings in the ancient world was fire. There's there's many famous fires throughout history, one of the most famous ones being the whole city of Rome burning down, and Nero sitting and doing nothing about it. But really, even into the the 19th and 20th centuries in America, many of our cities experienced great, terrible fires. And after a huge fire, most, most things get totally burned up. And it's only the best materials that are going to, that are going to survive and make it through a fire. And the greatest... And, and so, I may still be saved, is what Paul's saying, even though I'm building with these lesser materials. But the problem is that the, the people who I'm, who I'm giving these other things to, this stuff that's not the gospel... If they're trusting and hoping in these other things to save them, there will be great pain. There will be great suffering because because just behaviorism doesn't save. Or any other good thing uh, or other teaching other than Jesus that you want to give people, if they don't know Jesus is not going to save. And that's why it's so vital that not only our leaders but everyone here, everyone in the church, Keep the gospel front and center in what we are proclaiming. And that we don't keep it to ourselves, but that we actually build with it. That we actually build the church with the gospel that we have been given. That is the material that that the Lord wants us to use. And so we preach salvation through our crucified Savior Jesus and nothing more. Because that is what the Lord uses to draw people to himself. To become living stones in this temple that is the body of Christ. And that's the kind of building that the church needs more of. Finding the needy. Finding the broken. Finding the sinful people. And introducing them to Jesus. Verse 14 says, That kind of building will receive a reward. I'm sure a lot of you saw the Lego movie last year. It was a good movie. I felt like it was a little hard on the people who like building according to the plan. If you are one of those people who like to pull, get your Legos and open the box and build exactly what you're supposed to, the movie kind of, may not have been for you. There were a couple messages in the movie and actually I think, um, I think one of the, the better messages in the movie was on the importance of building together. Uh, the son and the father building together. Sorry, I just spoiled it if you haven't seen it, but you've had a year at this point, so. <laughs> uh, right, but imagine, imagine two children building with, building with Legos, right? And working together, totally building different things, but working together, they, they're each build. What they build in the end may look really weird, and you may not really be able to identify it. But they, you know, they can build something that, will, that you will come as a, as a parent or as a, whoever's kind of responsible for them, just be like, yeah, that's great. But when one of the kids comes in and starts, like, picking up the Legos and throwing it at the other one and uh, just stomping on things, well, then you've got a problem. <laughs> you've got to remove that. You've got to remove that child. Put that child in timeout. And verses 16 and 17 are, are some difficult verses in this passage, but I think they're really crucial for understanding the importance of the church. We have to understand that God has made his spirit to dwell in the hearts of his people. Now, in the Old Testament, you know, back before, before Jesus came, God made his spirit to dwell at his temple. And the high priest would go in for the sake of on behalf of all the people, once a year. Once a year to be in the presence of God's Spirit. But now, Jesus has come and he has poured out his Spirit on all of his people. So his Spirit is now resting and dwelling in our very hearts. Paul's saying divisions in the church are painful, divisions in the church are foolish, but ultimately the Lord will still work through them. But the warning in verse 17 is against the work that attacks the hearts of God's people. Because it's actually an attack on the work God is doing. What does it say? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Work that goes against the church Goes against God. You cannot be a part of what God is doing if you are not a part of His church, of His gathered ones, of His people. Because God has chosen His church and made His church holy, made them the place where His Spirit dwells. Despite the fact that His church is full of messed up, broken sinners, those are the people that God has chosen to work through and to show his power and to show his love. It's to those who had once rejected him who have now been brought near. And there's nothing about the people God saves that's intrinsically worthy. Nothing about you or about me. None of us deserve this love. Of course the people in your church frustrate you. Of course they do. They're a mess. But they're a mess that God loves at great cost, at great cost to himself. Because ultimately, God has built the church and is building the church for the glory of Jesus Christ, and He is giving the church to His Son Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 20. They return 18, 19, and 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. This is a return on Paul's part to an important theme of his in 1 Corinthians, that the wisdom of God appears foolish to the world. It is foolish to the world that God himself would die on a cross, that our Savior would come in humility and suffer. But the inverse is also true. Look at verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God defining ourselves by what degrees we've earned, how popular we are on social media, how much our house costs, how well we're doing um, in our careers. All these things we do and they are foolish because they're exactly like all the things that the world seeks after and chases after. And none of them glorify Christ because none of them have eternal significance when they are pursued apart from Christ, none of them build up the church, none of these identities we, we chase after. And many of us, maybe all of us, at some level, really act like or live as though we can trick God, as though he'll be fooled by our regular worship attendance, regular Bible study attendance, into thinking that we're a part of, a, part of his church when... We really don't have any love for Him. And it's not just dishonest, it's foolish, because it's looking at the trappings of the church and mistaking those for the church itself. It assumes the church is ultimately about you and about making you feel better, about making you look better, about making you act better. But instead, the church is about worshiping Jesus. It's about loving God. It's about living in response to this great love that we have shown and Christians at the end of the day must exchange their individual glory for the glory and the growth of Christ and his church. Therefore verse 21 says, "So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours." Now what does that mean that all things are yours? It means that the things that we take pride in, they're too small. They're too insignificant. We deprive ourselves of greater treasures by focusing on the small things, on the little things. Like the child who finds a penny and thinks, oh man, look at all this money I have. In Christ we have an identity and we have a purpose greater than anything else found in this world. But too often we think only of what we lose. We define the church, we define our faith by what we have to give up to follow Christ. This passage reminds us that because of Jesus, we don't have to fight for some small recognition, for some fleeting momentary honor, because He brings us with Him to glory and honor and beauty for all eternity. He says, all things are yours, and you are Christ's. I think the hardest problem for us with this teaching in our culture is our American love and fixation on individuality and freedom and the idea of repenting of our pride and turning from our selfish ambition requires that we first see this self-abasing love of Jesus for us on the cross that with his, with his freedom with his power he chose to give it all up to claim a people for himself, to love others. And if you don't see your need for that kind of love, and you don't understand the cost of that love from Jesus, then you will just continue to strive after these things that that do not save, that can never satisfy. And you won't ever be able to lay down your own life for him. You see, we must understand where this passage ends, that, that we belong to another. He says, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It's only when we find our hope and comfort in that belonging, that our identity is in Him, in belonging to Christ, that we'll fully experience the joy of being His church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see Your church the way Jesus sees us. Show us a vision for your church that's greater and more glorious than anything we can imagine. Train our eyes to look not to the small and momentary individual honors of this world, but to the everlasting glory and beauty of Jesus and His church made one through all eternity. Give us hope for that great day when Jesus returns to claim us as His prize. Sustain us as we wait with eager expectation and fill us with your spirit as we seek to serve you in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work. Give us the faith to enter into the work of building your church by sharing with the world the glorious news of your great love. We pray these things through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It is for his glory and praise that we have been gathered. Amen.